Chapter 7 of Short Stories for Colored People, Both Old and Young, by Silas X. Floyd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Road to Success The world is constantly looking for the man who knows the most, and it pays little regard to those who are proficient in the usual degree in the same things. One must excel, or, in other words, no more than his associates in order to succeed notably. The world will bid high for you if you know more than other men. So that boys and girls who are preparing themselves for the duties of life should not aim simply at being as good as somebody else, but they should aim at being the best that it is possible to be in any chosen line of life or business. I have noticed in my short lifetime that there is a great tendency on the part of young people to cut short their education. Being able to shine in the intellectual and social worlds with the small attainments made in some college or normal school or industrial school, the average Negro man is content to stop with a diploma or certificate from one or another of these institutions. They will never realize what injury they have done themselves by doing so until it's too late. On the other hand, there is another large class of young people that stop short even before they finish the course in even any one of the normal or industrial schools. They must go out to work. They know enough to make a living. What's the use of so much education anyhow? This is the way some of them talk. This is what some of them believe. Boys and girls, no man or woman with such low ideals will ever reach the topmost round of the ladder of fame. Such boys and girls will always play a second-rate part in the great drama of life. The boys and girls who are going to the front, the boys and girls who are going to have the leading parts, are the boys and girls who are willing to take time to prepare themselves. And preparation means hard work, and not only hard work, but hard and long continued work. A person can learn a good deal in one year. A person can learn a good deal in two years. But nobody can learn enough in one or two years, or in three or four years, to make it at all likely that he will ever be sought by the great world. Aside from the rudimentary training, it ought to take at least ten years to make a good doctor, or a good lawyer, or a good electrician, or a good preacher. Four of these years ought to be spent in college, and four in the professional school, and the other two ought to be spent picking up a practical or working knowledge of the calling, whatever it may be. The young doctor obtains this practical knowledge in hospitals and in practice among the poor. The electrician obtains it by entering some large electrical industry or manufactory, in which a thoroughly practical knowledge of mechanical engineering and electricity can be secured. It is true that some men have become distinguished in these callings without this long preparation of which I have spoken. Yet it is also true that they would have been better off, they would have been more likely to have become eminent, if they had taken the longer course. College is a little world which every one, other things being equal, ought to enter and pass through before launching into the great world. Keeping One's Engagements what would happen if everybody should begin tomorrow to keep all his promises and fulfill all his engagements? I think it would make a new world at once. There is a great need that the attention of young people should be called to the importance of keeping engagements. 
much of the confusion and annoyance and trouble of this world would be done away with if people would learn to keep their promises the oft-repeated excuse i forgot is not reasonable if the memory is in the habit of playing tricks with you then you ought to make notes of your engagements write them down in some way so that you will not forget them arnold of rugby said thoughtlessness is a crime and he was right the great ruskin has also uttered strong words in condemnations of thoughtlessness in youth he said but what excuse can you find for willingness of thought at the very time when every crisis of the future fortune hangs on your decisions a youth thoughtless when the career of all his days depends on the opportunity of a moment a youth thoughtless when his every act is a foundation stone of future conduct and every imagination a fountain of life or death be thoughtless in any after years rather than now though indeed there is only one place where a man may be nobly thoughtless his deathbed no thinking should ever be left to be done there and then boys and girls should remember that promptness should always accompany the fulfilling of an engagement otherwise the engagement is not really kept a person's time is a valuable possession which should be respected by all who has not been exasperated by someone with apparent indifference in keeping an engagement a half or three-quarters of an hour late and often a whole train of troubles will follow in the wake of tardiness the punctual boy or girl in this life is the one who advances most rapidly the punctual boy or girl will make a punctual man or woman a promise-breaker or one who is late in keeping his appointments cannot in the true sense of the term be considered a first-class person a midnight mishap uncle ned returned from his possum hunt about midnight bringing with him a fine fat possum he built a glowing fire dressed the possum pared and split the sweet potatoes and pretty soon he had the possum and taters in the oven while the meal was cooking uncle ned amused himself with his favorite old banjo when the possum had been baked brown and crisp he took it out of the oven and set it on the hearth to give it time to cool mentally congratulating himself on the glorious repast he thought soon to enjoy he sat silently for a while in the old armchair but presently he was snugly wrapped in the arms of tired nature's sweet restorer balmy sleep it happened that two young fellows who were pretty well acquainted with uncle ned's habits had been stealthily watching about the house waiting this particular chance as soon as they were convinced that the old man was safe in the arms of morpheus they crept into the house and hurriedly helped themselves to uncle ned's supper including the coffee and bread when they finished the hasty meal by way of attempting to cover up their tracks they smeared uncle ned's hands and mouth with the possum gravy and then beat a retreat after a time uncle ned aroused from his peaceful slumber it is needless to say that he had dreamed about his supper at once he dived down to inspect the viands when lo and behold the hearth was empty uncle ned steadied himself and studied a while well he said finally i muster ate that possum i must a et that possum in my sleep he looked at his hands they were greasy he smelt his hands as he did so he said dat smells like possum grease i sure must a et that possum 
he discovered grease on his lips. Out went his tongue. "'Dat tastes like possum grease,' he said. He got up. He looked around the house. There was no sign of the intruders. He rubbed his stomach. He resumed his seat, and giving up all for lost, he said, "'Well, if I did eat dat possum, it sets lighter on my appetite than any possum I ever et before.'" Frederick Douglass in 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition, or World's Fair, was held in Chicago in commemoration of the 400th anniversary of the discovery of America. A Negro man, the Honorable Frederick Douglass, attended that great exposition and delivered an address on Negro Day. Speaking of this great man's visit, the advance, one of Chicago's great religious papers, said, it was fine to see at the Congress on Africa the tall form and magnificent head of the grand old man, Frederick Douglass, now seventy-five years of age, perfectly erect, kindly, majestic, the ancient fires of inspiration welling up all through his being yet, affable to all, finding it still to be as natural to be eloquent as to speak at all, sympathetic to the core with the people of his own race, yet none the less loyal to the common interests of all the people of his country. Neither blind to the obstacles in their path and the cruel social injustice and meanness to which they are often exposed, nor, on the other hand, unmindful of the friends they have in the South, as also in the North, or above all to the overshining care and purpose of God himself, with the far-off divine intent that so clearly takes in the future of both the American and the African continents. Few Americans have had a more conspicuously providential mission than Frederick Douglass, and hardly anything in this remarkable Congress was more eloquent or more convincing than his personal presence. Frederick Douglass was born a slave, and his life as a slave was one of peculiar hardship. Of it, he himself says in his autobiography, I suffered little from any punishment I received, except from hunger and cold. I could get enough neither of food or clothing, but suffered more from cold than hunger. In the heat of the summer or the cold of the winter alike, I was kept almost in a state of nudity. No shoes, jackets, trousers, or stockings. Nothing but a coarse tow linen shirt reaching to the knee. That I wore night and day. In the daytime I would protect myself by keeping on the sunny side of the house, and in bad weather in the corner of the kitchen chimney. The great difficulty was to keep warm at night. I had no bed. The pigs in the pen had leaves, and the horses in the stable had straw, but the children had nothing. In the very cold winter I sometimes got down the bag in which corn was carried to the mill and got into that. My feet have been so cracked by frost that the pen with which I am writing might have been laid in the gashes. With regard to his food, he said that he often disputed with the dogs over the crumbs that fell from his master's table. Now this man, born so lowly and surrounded by such circumstances, turned out to be in the course of time by hard work and self-application, one of the most influential American citizens, and one of the greatest orators that this country has ever known. Among other high offices of trust and responsibility, he was once marshal of the District of Columbia, recorder of deeds in the District of Columbia, and United States minister to Haiti. He died February 20, 1895, 
at his home in Anacostia, D.C., at the age of 77 years. A monument to his memory has been erected in Rochester, New York, where he once lived. What Frederick Douglass made of himself is possible for any American boy with grit. Every boy and girl in America should read the life of this prominent Negro and strive to emulate his virtues. His memory is worthy to be honored to the last day of time. Our Dumb Animals Domestic animals, like horses, cats and dogs, seem to be almost as dependent upon kind treatment and affection as human beings. Horses and dogs especially are the most keenly intelligent of our dumb friends, and are alike sensitive to cruelty in any form. They are influenced to an equal degree by kind and affectionate treatment. If there is any form of cruelty that is more reprehensible than another, it is abuse of a faithful horse who has given his whole life to the service of the owner. When a horse is pulling a heavy load with all his might, doing the best he can to move under it, to strike him, spur him, or swear at him is simply barbarous. To kick a dog around, to tie tin cans to his tail, or strike him with sticks, just for fun of hearing him yelp or seeing him run, is equally barbarous. No high-minded man, no high-minded boy or girl, would do such a thing. We should never forget how helpless, in a large sense, dumb animals are, and how absolutely dependent upon the humanity and kindness of their owners. They are really the slaves of man, having no language by which to express their feelings or needs. The poet Cowper said, I would not enter on my list of friends, though graced in polished manners and fine sense, yet wanting sensibility, the man who needlessly sets foot upon a worm. Every boy and girl should be willing to pledge himself to be kind to all harmless living creatures, and every boy and girl should strive to protect such creatures from cruel usage on the part of others. It is noble, boys and girls, for us to speak for those that cannot speak for themselves, and it is noble also for us to protect those that cannot protect themselves. A PLUCKY BOY The boy marched straight up to the counter. "'Well, my little man,' said the merchant, "'what can I do for you?' "'If you please,' said the boy, "'I came in to see if you wouldn't let me work for you.' The boy was not yet ten years old, and he was small for his age. But there was something in his speech or manner that held the man's attention. "'Do some work for me, eh?' said the man. "'What kind of work could you do?' "'You can hardly look over the counter.' "'Oh, yes, I can,' said the little fellow, "'as he stood on tiptoe and peered over the counter. "'Out of sheer curiosity, "'the merchant came from behind the counter "'so as to get a good look at the boy. "'Oh,' he said, "'I see you've got copper taps on your shoes. "'I suppose your mother couldn't keep you in shoes "'if they didn't have taps on them.' "'She can't keep me in shoes anyway, sir,' "'and the little boy's voice hesitated.' "'How old are you?' asked the merchant. "'I'm older than I look. Folks say I'm small for my age.' "'Well, what is your age?' "'I'm going on ten, said Davy, with a look of great importance. "'You see,' he continued, "'my mother hasn't anybody but me, "'and this morning I saw her crying "'because she could not find five cents in her pocketbook, "'and she thinks she must have lost it, "'and it was the last cent that she had in the world.' 
and i have not had any breakfast sir the voice again hesitated and tears came into the little boy's eyes oh don't cry my little man i guess i can help you to breakfast here take this quarter he pulled a quarter from his vest pocket and handed it to the boy the boy shook his head mother wouldn't let me beg was his simple answer huh said the merchant where's your father we never heard of him sir after he went away he was lost in the steamer city of new york that's too bad but you're a plucky little fellow anyhow let me see and he looked straight down into the boy's eyes and the boy looked straight up at him turning to the head man after a while the merchant said palmer is cash boy number five still sick dead sir died last night was the reply i'm sorry but here's a boy you might use put him down in number five's place we'll try him for a while anyhow what is your name my little man he asked turning to the boy again davy thomas well davy we'll give you three dollars a week to start with you come tomorrow morning and i'll tell you what to do here's a dollar of your wages in advance i'll take it out of your first week's pay do you understand yes sir i understand and i thank you too i'll be back in the morning davy shot out of the store and lost no time in getting home the old creaky steps in the old ramshackle house fairly sang with delight as the weight of the little boy hurried up them i've got it mother exclaimed davy i'm a cash boy the man's going to give me three dollars a week and he says i've got pluck too and here's a dollar to get some breakfast with and don't you cry any more for i'm going to be the man of this house now at first the mother was dumbfounded then she looked confused and then she looked well it passes my power to tell you how she looked as she took davy in her arms and hugged him and kissed him the tears streaming down her cheeks but they were tears of joy and thankfulness a heart-to-heart -heart talk i asked you to remain after school a few minutes because i wanted you to help me rearrange the desks and furniture but i had another reason for asking you to remain and i think it is more important than the one i have just stated the desks had all been arranged according to the teacher's notion and henry holt had gathered up his books to go home it was then that his teacher miss ada johnson addressed him won't you sit down here a minute david she continued i wish to speak to you a minute or two david quietly took a seat he was one of the largest boys in the school and had been giving an unusual amount of trouble during the day in fact he had been a source of annoyance ever since the new teacher had taken charge david the teacher went on i wonder if you realize how hard you have made it for me in school today is there any reason why we cannot be friends and work together and i wish to be a friend to you if you will let me you could help me so much and you could help your classmates so much if you only would i want to ask you if you think your conduct has been manly today has it been kind david said nothing but hung his head i heard before i came here that you were an unruly boy people say you will neither study nor work and some people say you are a very mean boy some of these things may be true david i'm sorry to say but i want to tell you that you are the only hope of a widowed mother and i want to say also that i think you are breaking her heart 
the teacher's voice faltered at the last words i know your father the low voice went on was a brave and noble man and when i hear people say it's a good thing that henry oliver died before he knew what his son was coming to i think what a pity it is that they cannot say how sad it is that henry oliver died before he could know what a fine manly fellow his son would be and what a stay and comfort to his mother the boy's head dropped to the desk in front of him and he began to sob the teacher went over to him and said gently you can be all this it is in your power to be all that your father would have you all that your mother would have you will you not turn over a new leaf now not only in your behavior and work in school but in your whole life as well david raised his head i am with you i'll do it teacher he replied a new resolve shining on his face all that day he did some of the most serious thinking of his life and he kept his promise the years have been many since then the little teacher has long since passed to her rest but david oliver is a living monument to the power of a few searching words the potency of a little personal interest and kindness manifested at a critical time a ghost story uncle mose an old-time colored man once said in a company of people who were talking about ghosts that he wasn't afraid of any ghost that ever walked the earth no saw not me he said i's got my first time to be scared of anything that's dead whereupon noah johnson told uncle mose that he would bet him a load of watermelons that he couldn't spend one night in the widow smith's house now the widow smith's house was said to be haunted or in other words it was filled with ghosts dis name de night said uncle mose i'll stay dar no haunts won't bother wid me no sah dose haints ain't no bother wid me and your water millions is just as good as is gone already the details were arranged judges were appointed and uncle mose was to stay in the haunted house that very night he got him some pine knots to keep a good blaze in the old-fashioned fireplace carried along an extra plug of tobacco secured a large dry goods box to be used for a chair and then he set out for the house he made a blaze and seated himself on the pine box for a time he sung a number of old plantation songs for his own amusement as well as to keep his company about midnight feeling somewhat drowsy uncle mose got up took a light and went on a tour of inspection he examined every room in the house his search revealed nothing unusual he wound up his search chuckling to himself i show his makin dis load of watermelons easy noah johnson didn't know who he's foolin wit i'm a man myself i ain't afeard of nothin i ain't he sat down on the box and pretty soon he was dozing it was not very long before he suddenly awoke he was at once seized with a strange and sudden fear he was too frightened to move although he did not look around he was conscious that there was another presence in the room his hair stood on ends he felt a cold chill run up and down his back by that time he knew that the object in the room whatever it was was moving towards him still he did not move because he could not the ghost for that was what all the people said it was stood over uncle mose for a little while and then quietly sat down on the box beside him 
Uncle Mose looked straight into the fireplace, but his heart was beating like a runaway horse. The silence in the room at that moment was like unto the silence of death. Everything was still and solemn. Uncle Mose could almost hear his own heart beating. The ghost finally broke the silence by saying, with a loud sigh, Huh? Huh? There don't seem to be but two of us here tonight. It was then that Uncle Mose looked around for the first time. As he did so, he exclaimed, Yes, and if I'm disouted, I won't be but one. And with that, he jumped through the window, taking a part of the sash with him. The judges had been waiting in the open air near the house, so as to watch the proceedings. They called to the fleeing Uncle Mose as he passed them and ordered him to stop. They said that they were all there and would protect him. But Uncle Mose, as he kept on running, hallooed back, I'll see y'all later. He ran at the top of his speed for more than a mile, for he was well-nigh scared to death. By and by, from sheer exhaustion, he was compelled to stop for a little rest. He was wet with perspiration from head to foot, and his clothes were as limp as a wet dish-rag. But the poor old man had no sooner seated himself on a stone by the roadside than up jumps the ghost and sits down beside him once more. Ah, said the ghost, you seem to have made pretty good time tonight. Yes, said Uncle Mose, but what I has done ain't nothing to do with what I squinter do. And up he jumped and lit out once more. He had not gone far on his second trip before an old rabbit ran out of the bushes and took out down the road ahead of him. Uncle Mose hallooed the rabbit and said, Get out of the way, rabbit, and let somebody run what can run. On and on the poor old man, almost scared to death, ran and ran. Perhaps he would have been running until now, but for a very unfortunate accident. About five miles from the widow Smith's house, he came in contact with the limb of a weeping willow tree that hung across the road. The poor old fellow, already tired out, was knocked speechless and senseless. Toward the break of day the judges, who had followed him, found him lying on the ground doubled up near the tree. Dim consciousness was slowly returning when they picked him up. They rubbed him and walked him around for a little while, and soon he was able to move himself. The first thing Uncle Mose said was, "'Tell Noah not to mind about them watermillions.' I stayed in dat house des as long as I could keep my conscience quiet. My old mammy always told me that it was a sin and a shame to bet, and now I believes it. And to this day, boys and girls, if you want to see a really mad man, you just ask Uncle Mose if he ever saw a ghost. End of chapter 7